Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show number 55, Mr. Ben Bova. Yes, we have a story by legend science fiction writer Ben Bova, and what a show, and what a story. Oh, I mean, this guy is the top tier in science fiction. Been there, done it. Throughout its kind of creation. And the sofa is very proud to have Mr. Ben Bova on the show. Give you a little heads up then, what's happening in today's show. We have the editorial by my good self, aiming at a little bit maybe... A touchy subject at the moment. We have Poetry by Mike Allen. Flash fiction comes for you from Mr. Jeff Van Der Meer. Fact article is a nice large one by Corey Docatour. We have a little promo coming up as well by Paul Kajiji. Look out for that. We have the next stage of the Sofa Note Awards. Mark Bowman there is to tell you who's actually in and what's happening. Everything like that. And I will add my little piece afterwards. Then we come on to the main fiction by Ben Bova. What a story. Cracking stuff. So, a fun-packed show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy the rest of the entertainment. So, the Starship Sofa is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. So we'll jump straight into the editorial by my good self. And it's all again to do with technology and everything like that. And the way this world is, is kind of so much changing. The e-books and the, the Kindles and all, you know, like kind of the iPod and the iPhone and now T-Mobile's G1 phone. All these things are kind of coming together. And it's just making, especially books, be a little bit off balance, you know, how we get them or how kind of bookshops get them. And I'm just wondering, and this was, I'd love to kind of have some feedback on this issue, just what you think of it. And it's all to do with, you know, kind of the iPhone and iTunes applications, you know, there is this function now on your iPhone. Amazon have got this little program out. And I think it's this is right. I've got it. And it might be on even on the, the G1 as well. So you've got your iPhone there. And I don't know how many kind of people have got iPhones. You know, I would like one, but <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit more about that kind of direction. My mobile phone's choice soon. But you've got your iPhone and you've got your applications. Now, in this application, there is a little one by Amazon, which allows you, I think it is, Take a photograph of a book and 
send it off to Amazon. Within a few seconds, basically, you will get Amazon reply back saying, yes, they've got that book. Do you want to buy it? Now, that sounds fine and great. Do you know what I mean? You, you find this book, you know, you, you kind of flash it. Oh, I want to get that book. I'll, I'll flash it, send it off. Oh, I can get it at Amazon. Great. One click on your iPhone and you've bought that book. Now, doing that in a bookshop, nine times out of ten, that book's going to be cheaper on Amazon. Where's bookshops going to be in the future? If that's the, the state of the, the play now, if, that, if that's the kind of playing field, if that's the, the technologies going down this route, it is going to be very hard for bookshops to kind of compete with someone who's just going, you know, you, basically you'd use a bookshop as a reference. Oh, that book there, I'll get it there. You know, and basically take a photograph of it. Yes, I'll buy it from Amazon, get it the next day. You know, it's a strange concept to get your head around, but somehow bookshops have got to be really now clued up. Do you know, it's not just, I'm guessing, not just about actually going in there buying a book. It's the experience of buying that book. I mean, we all like books, don't get us wrong. And it's even, you know, you get them from Amazon, it's still that kind of nice feel, a touchy feel. And I think it's still got maybe a little bit to go before the whole takeover from ebook readers, the likes of Kindle and everything coming together. I'm sure that might boil down to that. But at this moment, just now, it's going to be very hard for bookshops. You know, we all love science fiction books. What do you feel like? And taking it kind of a little bit stage further, I was listening to another podcast and, you know, this G1 from T-Mobile. But there's a function on there where you can actually read the barcode. And it's the same principle. It will tell you where there is the cheaper one or where the cheapest one is. And because it's satellite GPS, it'll tell you whereabouts the nearest one is from where you're standing. So you could... Top of your head, you could be in, say, one of our department stores in England, House of Fraser, or John Lewis's. Oh, I like that TV. Click the barcode. You can get it from Better Buys or wherever, just up the road. Where does it end? Do you know what I mean? Great for customer, consumer, you know, great for us, but difficult off-footed period for shop owners and everything like that, you know, especially... You know, the size of Amazon and books and independent bookstores, this is just another nail in the coffin. You know, how do they take it to the next level, bookshops? You know, I'm guessing, like I said before, it's got to be the experience of buying books. You know, that coffee smell in the air, the nice comfy chairs. Because they can't just keep on cutting the prices of the books. You know, and I guess good things is to get the authors in, but you can't have authors flogged to within an inch of the lives doing book tours every minute of the day. So let us hear some thoughts. It'd be nice to know. So we will move on from my little rant or my little topic to a little bit of poetry by Mike Allen. Just give you a little heads up on Mike Allen. He is the actual editor of Mythic Delirium. Now, Mythic Delirium is a biannual journal that publishes science fiction, fantasy, horror, and surreal genre poetry. And it's featured poets as, you know, as big as Ursula K. Le Guin, Joe Haldeman, and Ian Watson. Now, they don't publish fiction, purely poetry. And what it says on their kind of little blur, while any style of poem is fair game, Mythic Delirium is actually unusual in, you know, they're not adverse to a little bit of rhyming poetry. So... If you're feeling glum, stick your fingers up your bum. (laughs) 
<laughs> Be honest. Star is born. But then the scene was just really funny. Nothing might knock my poems out. When, when considering sending a rhyme in pornos, keep in mind that the best rhyme does not call attention to itself. What about this one? If you're feeling grotty, stick your fingers up your body. <laughs> hmm? No? Well, maybe not. You can get subscribe to Mythic Delirium. Two issues for a year subscription, $9. $16 for four issues. There you go. Drop me an email. I'll put links on the site so you can go and have a look at Mythic Delirium. I mean, Pori in the Starship Sova is becoming really popular. You know, I just kind of put it out at the beginning, but it seems to, like, hit the mark with people. So do pop over there and say hello. Today's poem is narrated by Annette Bowman. She is a multi-degreed bohemian goddess who lives like a pauper in the pursuit of creative life as a writer of speculative fiction and artist of whatever strikes her fancy. Her favourite thing to do is breathe, followed closely by thinking and writing. She has a brand spanking new blog. The stars are not made of fire.blogspot.com On the blog, she's hoping to have links to many writers' resources and websites related to science fiction and fantasy. She says we put a link up to Starship Sova. Thank you very much, Annette. And you're more than welcome to send Annette an email. Annette at com. Look out for more work by Annette Bowman, coming soon. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. How I Will Outwit the Time Thieves by Mike Allen. At last I see this conspiracy for what it is. A temporal embezzlement siphoning away my time for life. Love. You. Into phantom accounts opened outside the borders of event and effect. Murdering thieves piss away my precious moments to make their own hours pass in blue-blood gourmet leisure. Depriving my days of sleep, of spark. Crammed full of phone calls and super-shriek demands and meals crammed down on the fly. While I starve for a second of rest... They lounge in their celestial sofas with all the time in the world to indulge their whims in fleshy one-night stands. One endless night. Stolen contraband. No cops to take the report. No courts to condemn the crime. No headsmen to hew off their hands. I must scheme and plot and turn vigilant vigilante. Make my own time. Counterfeit the minutes, stuff them in the cracks, pad here, pad here, breaths of fresh air injected in the frantic. Then, once I've made enough room to move, grasp a length of time with my fingers. Tie a knot. Darling, I've reserved a loop. Let's slip into and spend a forgotten while. Emerge the same moment we left. Sweaty and spent and badly in need of a shower. Could I make a double knot? Could our circle eat its own tail? Divide into a new stream with each choice we make inside. The infinities together we so richly deserve all played out even before they begin. But where? When have you gone? The more time I make, the less you have, slipping away, carried off in the stream. Whose time must we steal to have a future together? <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 
35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And this is a little idea I've just had been kicking around with. Me and my good friend Fred are going to do Dan Simmons, a couple of Dan Simmons books. And hasn't Audible releasing their new versions of this Hyperion and the fall of Hyperion? That's coming on the 23rd of December. So if you want to listen along with me and Fred and maybe join in a chat on these two books, pop over there and subscribe. Give you a little heads up what else Audible's got this month. Shadow Bridge by Gregory Frost. We have got two cracking stories coming by Gregory Frost soon as well. The Speed of Dark by Elizabeth Moon, a Nebula award-winning novel. And they've got that Fast Times at Fairmont High by Vernor Vin, Hugo award-winning novella. Kim Stanley Robinson's The Science in the Capital trilogy. 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below and 60 Days and Counting. Coming in December the 16th, they have Mike Resnick's Starship Rebel. And on the 23rd, like I say, is Hyperion and the Fall of Hyperion. Do you just want to join in with myself and Fred and go through that book? So there you go. Pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. Next week, come on to a little bit of flash fiction by Mr. Jeff Vandermeer. And actually, I just found out Jeff Vandermeer has been away from offline, away writing for a month, not being on. Wow. How strange would that be? And if you take a look on his blog, he actually shows what he looks like now after a month of like intense writing. <laughs> Fantastic. Been through hell and back. Narration today is by our good friend, Mark Nelson. Do pop over to Mark Nelson's site. So the Starship Sofa and Oral Delights is very proud to present Magician by Jeff Vandermeer. There was a magician, of course. I say, of course, because we had no right to expect a magician or anyone else. At first, he didn't seem that good. The cards were still visible when the doves appeared from his hands. The sleeves of his shirt seemed loose, suspect. He smelled inexplicably of lime. His coattails were muddy. Only gradually did we realize that the magician was doing things we hadn't noticed. He turned Cody's shirt from gray to a melange of orange, red, and green. He gave Sewell a lisp and a mustache. The stupid, sad tricks that dripped from his hands with a loose insolence, the limp shuffling of the cards, the way he flexed the singing saw before he cut his lackluster assistant, a sad-eyed terrier, in half. These were just the decoys to distract us as we began to tell him things we didn't want to, things we'd never told the guards, even when they were torturing us. Details about our families, about our pasts, about our very blood. And so our ID tags changed. Our opinions on a myriad of topics changed we realized we were standing in the snow in our boots, chained together with just a tent roof to protect us. 
The horizon was an engulfing yellow-black line, and in front of it there was nothing but the camp and the dogs and the fence. None of that changed. But we changed, and kept changing, in the cold, under the gray sky. During his entire routine the magician did not speak, his arms and hands in their deceptive motions speaking for him. At the end of his performance he stood there for a moment, waiting for the applause frozen in our minds. Then he said, It's your turn now. But there was no turn for us. Why should there be? We had not asked for a magician. We wanted our tongues back. We wanted our words, our lives. After a while, the guards took him away, leaving us as we had been before, only a little more so. The doves lived for a day, but only because we waited until then to kill and eat them. The doves were all that remained of the magician, and our need to preserve that memory had been stronger than our hunger, for a time. And so we waited, waited for the next, and the next. There you go, don't forget. As usual, copyright is Mr. Vandermeer's. And Mark Nelson, thank you so much. Do pop over and check out that photograph and check out Jeff Vandermeer's blog. A very popular one it is too. So we're jumping straight into our fact article by none other than Corey Doctorow. Well, Corey wrote it. Our good friend Paul Kajiji is narrating it. And listen at the end of the article because I'm going to play Paul's Kajiji's promo for an exciting times he's got coming up with his podcast. Now this is taken from Corey Doctorow's essays and all his ramblings. It was put into a book called Contents. And we've played one of these before, but this one's all about the singularity. And I just thought it'd be very nice to air this out on the Starship Sofa. So Corey, tell us everything about the singularity. When the singularity is more than a literary device, an interview with futurist inventor Ray Kurzweil. Originally published in Asimov's science fiction magazine, June 2005. It's not clear to me whether the singularity is a technical belief system or a spiritual one. The singularity, a notion that's crept into a lot of Skiffy and whose most articulate in-genre spokesmodel is Verna Vinge, describes the black hole in history that will be created at the moment when human intelligence can be digitized. When the speed and scope of our cognition is hitched to the price-performance curve of microprocessors, our progress will double every 18 months, and then every 12 months, and then every 10, and eventually every 5 seconds. Singularities are, literarily, holes in space from whence no information can emerge, and so SF writers occasionally mutter about how hard it is to tell a story set after the information singularity. Everything will be different. What it means to be human will be so different that what it means to be in danger or happy or sad or any of those other elements that make up the squeeze and release tension in a good yarn will be recognisable to us pre-singletons. It's a neat conceit to write around. I've committed singularity a couple of times usually in collaboration with Gonzo Singleton, Charlie Stross, the manned antipope of the singularity. 
But those stories have the same relation to futurism as romance novels do to love. A shared jumping-off point, but radically different morphologies. Of course, the singularity isn't just a conceit for noodling with in the pages of the pulps. It's the subject of serious-minded punditry, futurism, and even science. Ray Kurzweil is one such pundit-futurist scientist. He's a serial entrepreneur who founded successful businesses that advanced the fields of optical character recognition, machine reading, software, text-to-speech synthesis, synthetic music instrument simulation, computer-based speech recognition, and stock market analysis. He cured his own type 2 diabetes through a careful review of the literature and the judicious application of first principles and reason. To a casual observer, Kurtzwill appears to be the star of some kind of Heinlein novel, stealing fire from the gods and embarking on a quest to bring his maverick ideas to the public, despite the dismissals of the establishment, getting rich in the process. Kurtzwill believes in the singularity. In his 1990 manifesto, The Age of Intelligent Machines, Kurtzwill persuasively argued that we were on the brink of meaningful machine intelligence. A decade later, he continued the argument in a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, whose most audacious claim is that the world's computational capacity has been slowly doubling since the crust first cooled and before, and that the doubling interval has been growing shorter and shorter with each passing year, so that now we see it reflected in the computer industry's Moore's Law, which predicts that microprocessors will get twice as powerful for half the cost about every 18 months. The breathtaking sweep of this trend has an obvious conclusion. Computers more powerful than people, more powerful than we can comprehend. Now, Kurtzwill has published two more books. The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology, Viking Spring 2005, and Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever, with Terry Grossman, Rodale, November 2004. The former is a technological roadmap for creating the conditions necessary for ascent into singularity. The latter is a book about life-prolonging technologies that will assist baby boomers in living long enough to see the day when technological immortality is achieved. See what I mean about his being a Highland hero? I still don't know if the singularity is a spiritual or a technological belief system. It has all the trappings of spirituality, to be sure. If you're pure and kosher, if you live right and your society is just, then you will live to see a moment of rapture when your flesh will slough away, leaving nothing behind but your car, your soul, your consciousness, to ascend to an immortal and pure state. I wrote a novel called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom where characters could make backups of themselves and recover from them if something bad happened, like catching a cold or being assassinated. It raises a lot of existential questions. Most prominently, are you still you when you've been restored from backup? The traditional AI answer is the Turing test invented by Alan Turing, the gay pioneer of cryptography and artificial intelligence, who was forced by the British government to take hormone treatments to cure him of his homosexuality, cultivating in his suicide in 1954.
Turing cut through the existentialism about measuring whether a machine is intelligent by proposing a parlor game. A computer sits behind a locked door with a chat program, and a person sits behind another locked door with his own chat program, and they both try to convince a judge that they are real people. If the computer fools a human judge into thinking that it's a person, then to all intents and purposes, it's a person. So how do you know if the backed-up you that you've restored into a new body, or a jar with a speaker attached to it, is really you? Well, you can ask it some questions, and if it answers the same way that you do, you're talking to a faithful copy of yourself. Sounds good, but the me who sent his first story into Asimov's seventeen years ago couldn't answer the question. Write a story for Asimov's the same way the me of today could. Does that mean I'm not me anymore? Kurtzwill has the answer. If you follow that logic. Then, if you were to take me ten years ago, I could not pass for myself in a Ray Kurzweil Turing test. But once the requisite uploading technology becomes available, a few decades hence, you could make a perfect enough copy of me, and it would pass the Ray Kurzweil Turing test. The copy doesn't have to match the quantum state of my every neuron either. If you meet me the next day, I'd pass the Ray Kurzweil Turing test. Nevertheless, none of the quantum states in my brain would be the same. There are quite a few changes that each of us undergo from day to day. We don't examine the assumption that we are the same person closely. We gradually change our pattern of atoms and neurons, but we very rapidly change the particles that pattern is made up of. We used to think that in the brain, the physical part of us most closely associated with our identity, cells change very slowly. But it turns out that the components of the neurons, the tubules, and so forth, turn over in only days. I'm a completely different set of particles from what I was a week ago. Consciousness is a difficult subject, and I'm always surprised by how many people talk about consciousness routinely, as if it could be easily and readily tested scientifically. But we can't postulate a consciousness detector that does not have some assumptions about consciousness built into it. Science is about objective third-party observations and logical deductions from them. Consciousness is about first-person subjective experience, and there's a fundamental gap there. We live in a world of assumptions about consciousness. We share the assumption that other human beings are conscious, for example. But that breaks down when we go outside of humans. When we consider, for example, animals, some say only humans are conscious and animals are instinctive and machine-like. Others see human behavior in an animal and consider the animal conscious. But even these observers don't generally attribute consciousness to animals that aren't human-like. When machines are complex enough to have responses recognizable as emotions, these machines will be more human-like than animals. The Kurtzweil singularity goes like this: Computers get better and smaller. Our ability to measure the world gains precision and grows even cheaper. Eventually, we can measure the world inside the brain and make a copy of it in a computer that's as fast and complex as the brain. And voila! Intelligence. Here, in the twenty-first century, we like to view ourselves as ambulatory brains, plugged into meat puppets that lug our precious grey matter from place to place. 
We tend to think of that grey matter as transcendently complex, and we think of it as being the bit that makes us, us. But brains aren't that complex, Kurtzwill says. Already we're starting to unravel their mysteries. We seem to have found one area of the brain closely associated with higher-level emotions, the spindle cells, deeply embedded in the brain. There are tens and thousands of them, spanning the whole brain, maybe 80,000 in total, which is an incredibly small number. Babies don't have any, most animals don't have any, and they likely only evolved over the last million years or so. Some of the high-level emotions that are deeply human come from these. Turing had the right insight. Based the test for intelligence on written language. Turing tests really work. A novel is based on language. With language, you can conjure up any reality, much more so than with images. Turing almost lived to see computers doing a good job of performing in fields like math, medical diagnosis, and so on, but those tasks were easier for a machine than demonstrating even a child's mastery of language. Language is the true embodiment of human intelligence. If we're not so complex, then it's only a matter of time until computers are more complex than us. When that comes, our brains will be modelable in a computer, and that's when the fun begins. That's the thesis of spiritual machines, which even includes a Heinlein-style timeline leading up to this day. Now, it may be that a human brain contains N logic gates and runs at X cycles per second and stores Z petabytes and that N and X and Z are all within reach. It may be that we can take a brain apart and record the position and relationships of all the neurons and subneuronal elements that constitute a brain, but there are also a nearly infinite number of ways of modeling a brain in a computer, and only a finite or possibly non-existent fraction of that space will yield a conscious copy of the original meat brain. Science fiction writers usually hand-wave this step, In Heinlein's The Man Who Sold the Moon, the gimmick is that once the computer becomes complex enough with enough random numbers, it just wakes up. Computer programmers are a little more sceptical. Computers have never been known for their skill at programming themselves. They tend to be no smarter than the people who write their software. But there are techniques for getting computers to program themselves, based on evolution and natural selection. A programmer creates a system that spits out lots, thousands or even millions of randomly generated programs. Each one is given the opportunity to perform a computational task, say, sorting a list of numbers from greatest to least, and the one that solves the problem best are kept aside while the others are erased. Now, the survivors are used as the basis for a new generation of randomly mutated descendants, each based on elements of the code that preceded them. By running many instances of a randomly varied program at once, and by culling the least successful and regenerating the population from the winners very quickly, it is possible to evolve effective software that performs as well or better than the code written by human authors. Indeed, evolutionary computing is a promising and exciting field that's realizing real returns through cool offshoots like ant colony optimization and similar approaches that are showing good results in fields as diverse as piloting military UAVs and efficiently provisioning car painting robots at automotive plants. 
So if you buy Kurtzwill's premise that computation is getting cheaper and more plentiful than ever, then why not use evolutionary algorithms to evolve the best way to model a scanned-in human brain such that it wakes up like Heinlein's Mike computer? Indeed, this is the crux of Kurtzwill's argument in Spiritual Machines. If we have computation to spare and a detailed model of a human brain, we need only combine them and out will pop the mechanism whereby we may upload our consciousness to digital storage media and transcend our weak and bothersome meat forever. But it's a cheat. Evolutionary algorithms depend on the same mechanism as real-world evolution, heritable variation of candidates, and a system that culls the least suitable candidates. This latter, the fitness factor that determines which individuals in a cohort breed and which vanish, is the key to a successful evolutionary system. Without it, there's no pressure for the system to achieve the desired goal, merely mutation and more mutation. But how can a machine evaluate which of a trillion models of a human brain is most like a conscious mind? Or better still, which one is most like the individual whose brain is being modelled? It is a sleight of hand in spiritual machines, Kurtzwill admits. But in The Singularity is Near, I have an in-depth discussion about what we know about the brain and how to model it. Our tools for understanding the brain are subject to the law of accelerating returns, and we've made more progress in reverse engineering the human brain than most people realize. This is a tasty Kurtzwillism that observes that improvements in technology yield tools for improving technology, round and round, so that the thing that progress begets more than anything is more and yet faster progress. Scanning resolution of human tissue, both spatial and temporal, is doubling every year, and so is our knowledge of the workings of the brain. The brain is not one big neural net. The brain is several hundred different regions, and we can understand each region. We can model the regions with mathematics, most of which have some nexus with chaos and self-organizing systems. This has already been done for a couple dozen regions out of several hundred. We have a good model of a dozen or so regions of the auditory and visual cortex, how we strip images down to very low-resolution movies based on pattern recognition. Interestingly, we don't actually see things. We essentially hallucinate them in detail from what we see from these two low-resolution cues. Past the early phases of visual cortex, detail doesn't reach the brain. We are getting exponentially more knowledge. We can get detailed scans of neurons working in vivo and are beginning to understand the chaotic algorithms underlying human intelligence. In some cases, we are getting comparable performance of brain regions in simulation. These tools will continue to grow in detail and sophistication. We can have confidence of reverse engineering the brain in 20 years or so. The reason that brain reverse engineering has not contributed much to artificial intelligence is that up until recently, we didn't have the right tools. If I gave you a computer and a few magnetic sensors and asked you to reverse engineer it, you might figure out that there's a magnetic device spinning when a file is saved, but you'd never get at the instruction set. Once you reverse engineer the computer fully, However, you can express its principles of operation in just a few dozen pages. Now there are new tools that let us see the interneuronal connections and their signaling in vivo and in real time. We're just now getting these tools and there's a very rapid application of the tools to obtain the data.
20 years from now, we will have realistic simulations and models of all the regions of the brain, and we will understand how they work. We won't blindly or mindlessly copy those methods. We will understand them and use them to improve our AI toolkit. So we'll learn how the brain works and then apply the sophisticated tools that we will obtain as we discover how the brain works. Once we understand a subtle science principle, we can isolate, amplify, and expand it. Air goes faster over a curved surface. From that insight, we isolated, amplified, and expanded the idea and invented air travel. We'll do the same with intelligence. Progress is exponential, not just a measure of power of computation, number of internet nodes and magnetic spots on a hard disk. The rate of paradigm shift is itself accelerating, doubling every decade. Scientists look at a problem and they intuitively conclude that since we've solved 1% over the last year, it'll therefore be 100 years until the problem is exhausted. But the rate of progress doubles every decade. And the power of the information tools in price performance, resolution, bandwidth and so on doubles every year. People, even scientists, don't grasp exponential growth. During the first decade of the Human Genome Project, we only solved 2% of the problem. But we solved the remaining 98% in five years. But Kurtzwill doesn't think that the future will arrive in a rush. As William Gibson observed, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. Sure, it would be interesting to take a human brain, scan it, reinstantiate the brain, and run it on another substrate. That will ultimately happen. But the most salient scenario is that we'll gradually merge with our technology. We'll use nanobots to kill pathogens, then to kill cancer cells, and then they'll go into our brain and do benign things there, like augment our memory, and very gradually they'll get more and more sophisticated. There's no single great leap, but there is ultimately a great leap comprised of many small steps. In The Singularity is Near, I describe the radically different world of 2040 and how we'll get there one benign change at a time. The singularity will be gradual, smooth. Really, this is about augmenting our biological thinking with non-biological thinking. We have a capacity of 1026 to 1029 calculations per second in the approximately 1010 biological human brains on Earth, and that number won't change much in 50 years. But non-biological thinking will just crash through that. By 2049, the non-biological thinking capacity will be on the order of a billion times that. We'll get to the point where biothinking is relatively insignificant. People didn't throw their typewriters away when word processing started. There's always an overlap. It'll take time before we realize how much more powerful non-biological thinking will ultimately be. It's well and good to talk about all the stuff we can do with technology, but it's a lot more important to talk about the stuff we'll be allowed to do with technology. Think of the global freakout caused by the relatively trivial advent of peer-to-peer file-sharing tools. Universities are wiretapping their campuses and disciplining computer science students for writing legitimate general-purpose software. Grandmothers and 12-year-olds are losing their life savings. Privacy and due process have sailed out the window without so much as a buy-your-leave. 
Even Peter Peasworth's enemies admit that there is a general purpose technology with good and bad uses. But when new tech comes along, it often engenders a response that countenances punishing an infinite number of innocent people to get at the guilty. What's going to happen when the new technology paradigm isn't song swapping, but transcendent superintelligence? Will the reactionary forces be justified in raising the whole ecosystem to eliminate a few parasites who are doing negative things with the new tools? Complex ecosystems will always have parasites. Malware, malicious software, is the most important battlefield today. Everything will become software. Objects will be malleable, will spend lots of time in VR, and CompuThought will be orders of magnitude more important than BioThought. Software is already complex enough that we have an ecological terrain that has emerged just as it did in the bio world. That's partly because technology is unregulated and people have access to the tools to create malware and the medicine to treat it. Today's software viruses are clever and stealthy and not simple-minded. Very clever. But here's the thing. You don't see people advocating shutting down the internet because malware is so destructive. I mean, malware is potentially more than a nuisance. Emergency systems, air traffic control, and nuclear reactors all run on vulnerable software. It's an important issue, but the potential damage is still a tiny fraction of the benefit we get from the internet. I hope it will remain that way, that the internet won't become a regulated space like medicine. Malware is not the most important issue facing human society today. Designer bioviruses are. People are concerned about WMDs, but the most daunting WMD would be a designed biological virus. The means exist in college labs to create destructive viruses that erupt and spread silently with long incubation periods. Importantly, a would-be bioterrorist doesn't have to put malware through the FDA's regulatory approval process, but scientists working to fix bio-malware do. In Huxley's Brave New World, the rationale for the totalitarian system was that technology was too dangerous and needed to be controlled, but that just pushes technology underground where it becomes less stable. Regulation gives the edge of power to the irresponsible who won't listen to the regulators anyway. The way to put more stones on the defence side of the scale is to put more resources into defence technologies, not create a totalitarian regime of draconian control. I advocate a $100 billion program to accelerate the development of antibiological virus technology. The way to combat this is to develop broad tools to destroy viruses. We have tools like RNA interference, just discovered in the past two years to block gene expression. We could develop means to sequence the genes of a new virus. SARS only took 31 days, and respond to it in a matter of days. Think about it. There's no FDA for software, no certification for programmers. The government is thinking about it, though. The reason the FCC is contemplating trusted computing mandates, a system to restrict what a computer can do by means of hardware locks embedded on the motherboard, is that computing technology is broadening to cover everything. So now you have communications bureaucrats, biology bureaucrats, all wanting to regulate computers. Biology would be a lot more stable if we moved away from regulation, which is extremely irrational and onerous and doesn't appropriately balance risks. Many medications are not available today, even though they should be. The FDA always wants to know what happens if we approve this and will it turn into a thalidomide situation that embarrasses us on CNN.
Nobody asks about the harm that will certainly accrue from delaying a treatment for one or more years. There's no political weight at all. People have been dying from diseases like heart disease and cancer for as long as we've been alive. Attributable risks get 100 to 1,000 times more weight than unattributable risks. Is this spirituality or science? Perhaps it is the melding of both. More shades of Heinlein, this time the weird religions founded by people who took stranger in a strange land way too seriously. After all, this is a system of belief that dictates a means by which we can care for our bodies virtuously and live long enough to transcend them. It is a system of belief that concerns itself with the meddling of non-believers who work to undermine its goals through irrational systems predicated on their disbelief. It is a system of belief that asks and answers the questions of what it means to be human. It's no wonder that the singularity has come to occupy so much of the science fiction narrative in these years. Science or spirituality, you could hardly ask for a subject better tailored to technological speculation and drama. There you go. Do pop over and say hello to Cory Doctorow. Check out that book. There's some great articles in that book. I think it's a fascinating one. And it's available on his website as a free download, as usual. And I'm not going to tell you about Paul Kajiji. I'm going to let Paul tell him himself. Imagine the world of the future. Since the moon was destroyed, the Earth's natural resources have all but dried up. We survive on the abundant supply of geothermal energy and live in corporate-sponsored nation-states. While life may seem good on the surface, the planet's orbit is in decline and one day it will stop altogether. Balance must be restored, but the only hope is locked away deep in a remote desert labyrinth. Welcome to the world of character development. An animated sci-fi series currently in production. The Process Diary is a fortnightly podcast documenting the making of character development. I know you love sci-fi, but do you love seeing how it all comes together? Do you love watching voice talent, modelers and animators bring concept sketches to vivid life? The story has been written. The models have been constructed. The quest has been revealed. In 2009, The Process Diary gets a new format and a whole new look. Check it out on iTunes or visit theprocessdiary.blogspot.com and subscribe to the feed any way you can. There you go. Paul, thank you so much. You put some hard work into the Starship Sofa. Thank you very much, Squire. So this is it. We are at the Sofa Note Awards. The points, everything, they've been correlated. I've sent out the dodgy emails. <laughs> the hundreds and hundreds of them. Yes, have you had them? So this is it. It's all been calculated. Mark's had his big, big calculator going there. And all the chaff's been taken away. And we're left with the pure, pure goodness of oral delights who is going to win these coveted prizes mr mark borman sir tell me about it hello there this is mark borman i'm here to tell you about the finalists for the starship sofa awards the sofa 
Two weeks ago, Starship Sofa asked you to nominate your favourite stories and contributors from the past 52 episodes of Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. The nomination round has now closed and the finalists are awaiting your votes. Before I announce the shortlists for each of the categories, I'd just like to say a very big thank you to all of those of you who voted. We had a total of 110 people voting on the online poll, as well as a few people having their say over on the Starship Sofa forums. Thank you very much for your contributions. Alright, here we go. Let's start with the two fiction categories. And I'll be announcing the story finalists from the earliest appearance to the most recent appearance. Here we go with Flash Fiction. We have our very own Tony C. Smith with The Switch from episode 34. We also have Spider Robinson with In the Olden Days from episode 35. From episode 37, Ted Chiang with What's Expected of Us. From episode 45, Reality 2.0 by Ian Creasy. And from episode 52, Godzilla's 12-step program by Joe R. Lansdale. Alright, on to the main fiction. We have, from the very first episode, even back before it was called Oral Delights, we have Michael Moorcock's London Bone. From episode 16, we have Ted Chiang with The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate. We also have The Sledgemaker's Daughter from Alastair Reynolds, which came out in the 17th episode. From the 39th episode, we have Tideline by Elizabeth Bear. And completing this list, we have Little Girl Down the Way by Lawrence Santoro from episode 46. Now, I'll be listing the episode numbers for each of those stories over on the forums, so that if you'd like to go back and have another listen, maybe even have a first listen, you can do so. Okay, on to the contributor categories now, all of which I'll announce in alphabetical order. First up, the best poetry contributor. We have... Bruce Boston, Samantha Henderson, and Laurel Winter. Moving on now to Best Fact Article Contributor. We have Jim Campanella, who provides us with science news, as well as a few other articles in the past. Corey Doctorow, who's spoken about issues surrounding SF publishing and copyright. Matthew Sanborn-Smith, who provides us with free online SF via his fiction crawler. And Amy H. Sturgis with her history of SF literature. The last of the categories is Best Narrator. And our finalists here are Jim Campanella, MCL, a.k.a. Martin from MCL Studios, Spider Robinson, Lawrence Santoro, and Amy H. Sturgis. Congratulations to all those authors and contributors for making it to the finals of Starship Sofa's The Sofanauts. You can vote for your favourite in each of those categories by heading over to the online finalist poll, the link to which can be found over at starshipsofa.com, or you can cast your vote in the Starship Sofa forums. Now I know it's going to be hard, but you only get one vote in each category. So choose wisely. The finalist poll will be open until January 23rd, so you've got plenty of time to go back and check out the nominated stories and contributors. I hope you'll get on board and cast your vote in the Sofanauts finals. 
We'll be announcing the winners at the end of January. That's all from me. Back to you, Tony. There you go. Oh, someone's in there. Main fiction. I had a feeling Merchant of Alchemist Gear would get in. Do you know what I mean? It had to get in there. I'm pleased Sedgemaker's daughter got in because that was a great story. I am so, so, so pleased. Lauren Santuro with Little Girl Down the Way. You know, I didn't know how that anyone was going to react. And when I went up and we got some great feedback, that was brilliant. Now it's in this category to win. Do you know what I mean? I'm chuffed a bit, you know what I mean? Some kind of decisions I've made aren't that <laughs> spectacular. That one was one of my better ones. London Bone, yes, that, you know what I mean? Great story, that, and just great narration, to be quite honest. And I guess Tideline as well, because I love the way Diane narrated that, and it just kind of, I always envisioned it as, a, as a, a female killing machine. Do you know what I mean? They're always the better ones. Flash Fiction, I don't know who this bloody Switch guy is. I don't know where that one's crept in from there. God's truth. Best poetry contributor. Now, there wasn't that many kind of poetry in there, so that's why, you know, hence the reason there's only three, but it was very close, that that little section, do you know what I mean? And the fact article, I guess, you know, the main hitters are in there, do you know what I mean? Amy, Jim, Matthew, and Corey Doctor sneaked in there. What the hell, how was that? Didn't even see them. Well, actually, he did, didn't he? He mentioned he did one five-minute one when we kind of got him on. Best narrator. Now, this is the one I'm kind of looking forward to, just to see, you know, who comes out victor. You know what I mean? Amy, Jim, Lawrence, spider and Martin. You know, and that, all the way through, I know that, you know, all the way through, that one was a close-rung one. And, you know, we've got a, a number of narrators that I kind of just missed that. Just missed it. And you're talking a point. So that's why it's so vital that you do vote. Do you know what I mean? When this kind of next round's all kicking off, the emails will be sent out again. Do vote, because this is what counts, do you know? So, there you go. And I'm really excited about this. Do mention this awards anywhere on other sites. You get a chance to win a book. Actually, one of them, Cory Doctorow's, has gone. I haven't posted it out yet, but I'll promise I will. But we've still got one more Cory Doctorow. I've got some Asimovs there. I've got another Asimov through the post which I've already got. I got the December one, didn't come, and I'm just getting it. I had to phone up and say, oh, it didn't come. So I got it sent through the post, and then the original ones come. Bear in mind, you get the December issue, actual issue, probably sometime in September. So that's how long it's taken, that one. So I have got a few more analogues. What did I say that for? A few more Asimovs to give out. Do mention the Starship Sofa anywhere you get a chance to win a book. So, we come on to the main fiction, and it's by Ben Bova. And again, this just, this why this show gets, for me, actually, better and better. You know what I mean? There's, the people and the stories just make everything, they click together. And I'm so pleased we've got this story. Give a little heads up on Mr. Ben Bova. Does he need any kind of heads up? This is the guy, if you're ever going to meet him, do you know what I mean? If you're ever going to step in his presence, you turn to your wife and say, does my tie look straight? What about my shoes? You know, he is the kind of one of the daddy kingpins there. Benjamin William Bova, born 1932, as we know, American science fiction author and editor. In 1971, he became the editor of Analog, taken over from John W. Campbell. You know, kind of what shoes to step into there. Now, after he left Analog, he went on to edit Omni during 1978 to 82. 
Bouverie is an avid fencer and has organised Avco Everett's Fencing Club. And he has been a past president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. Mr. Ben Bova went back to school in 1980, earning an MA in communications in 1987 and a PhD in 1996. Mr. Bova is a frequent commentator on radio and television and a widely popular lecturer. You know, he's been this award-winning editor and he's also been an executive in the aerospace industry. His novel Titan won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel in 2006. His new book, which we previewed, give it a little heads up on the new titles, Mars Life. And that actually is up for competition as well. So pop over to Mr. Ben Boversight if you want to say hello and tell him what a fantastic story this is. Narration today comes from Crispy. Now, I asked Crispy before, and he's probably kicking himself now, a little bio, and I didn't get it in time. And just through our communications, I know he's into some computer business that just takes him all over the world. So I don't know if it's espionage, it's probably something dead mundane. But Chris, don't tell us about it, because then it'll spoil me illusion. This is just a great narration, do you know what I mean? It's kind of a little difficult story, fun narration, lots of voices. So, heads up, thank you very much, Crispy. So the Starship Sofa and Her Oral Delights presents Inspiration by Ben Bova. He was as close to despair as only a lad of 17 can be. But you heard what the professor said, he moaned. It is all finished. There is nothing left to do. The lad spoke in German, of course. I had to translate it for Mr. Wells. Wells shook his head. I fail to see why such splendid news should upset the boy so. I said to the youngster, Our British friend says you should not lose hope. Perhaps the professor is mistaken. Mistaken? How could that be? He is a famous man, a nobleman, a baron. I had to smile. The lad's stubborn disdain for authority figures would become world famous one day. But it was not in evidence this summer afternoon, in AD 1896. We were sitting in a sidewalk cafe with a magnificent view of the Danube and the city of Linz. Delicious odours of cooking sausages and bakery pastries wafted from the kitchen inside. Despite the splendid warm sunshine, though, I felt chilled and weak, drained of what little strength I had remaining. Where is that blasted waitress? Wells grumbled. We've been here half an hour at the least. Why not just lean back and enjoy the afternoon, sir? I suggested tiredly. This is the best view in all the area. Herbert George Wells was not a patient man. He had just scored a minor success in Britain with his first novel and had decided to treat himself to a vacation in Austria. He came to that decision under my influence, of course, but he did not yet realise that. At age 29, he had a lean, hungry look to him that would mellow only gradually with the coming years of prestige and prosperity. Albert was round-faced and plumpish, still had his baby fat on him, although he had started a moustache, as most teenage boys did in those days. He was a thin, scraggly black wisp, nowhere near the full white brush it would become, if all went well with my mission. It had taken me an enormous amount of manoeuvring to get Wells and this teenager to the same place at the same time. The effort had nearly exhausted all my energies. Young Albert had come to see Professor Thompson with his own eyes, of course. Wells had been more difficult. He'd wanted to see Salzburg, the birthplace of Mozart. I had taken him instead to Linz, 
with a thousand assurances that he would find the trip worthwhile. He complained endlessly about Linz, the city's lack of beauty, the sour smell of its narrow streets, the discomfort of our hotel, the dearth of restaurants where one could get decent food, by which he meant burnt mutton. Not even the city's justly famous Linzer talk pleased him. Not as good as a decent trifle, he groused. Not as good by half. I, of course, knew several versions of Linz that were even less pleasing including one in which the city was nothing more than charred radioactive rubble and the Danube so contaminated that it glowed at night all the way down to the Black Sea. I shuddered at that vision and tried to concentrate on the task at hand. It had almost required physical force to get Wells to take a walk across the Danube on the ancient stone bridge and up the Postlingberg to this little sidewalk cafe. He had huffed with anger when he had started out from our hotel at the city's central square then soon was puffing with exertion as we toiled up the steep hill. I was breathless from the climb also. In later years a tram would make the ascent, but on this particular afternoon we had been obliged to walk. He had been mildly surprised to see the teenager trudging up the precipitous street just a few steps ahead of us. Recognising that unruly crop of dark hair from the audience at Thompson's lecture that morning, Wells had graciously invited Albert to join us for a drink. We deserve a beer or two after this blasted climb, he said, eyeing me unhappily. Panting from the climb, I translated to Albert. Mr. Wells invites you to have a refreshment with us. The youngster was pitifully grateful, although he would order nothing stronger than a tea. It was obvious that Thompson's lecture had shattered him badly, so now we sat on uncomfortable cast-iron chairs and waited. They for the drinks they had ordered, me... For the inevitable. I let the warm sunshine soak into me and hoped it would rebuild at least some of my strength. The view was little short of breathtaking. The brooding castle across the river, the Danube itself streaming smoothly and actually blue as it glittered in the sunlight, the lakes beyond the city, and the blue-white snow peaks of the Austrian Alps hovering in the distance like ghostly petals of some immense unworldly flower. But Wells complained, that has to be the ugliest castle I've ever seen. What did the gentleman say? Albert asked. He is stricken by the sight of the Emperor Friedrich's castle, I answered sweetly. Ah, yes. It has a certain grandeur to it, doesn't it? Wells had all the impatience of a frustrated journalist. Where is that damnable waitress? Where is our beer? I'll find the waitress, I said, rising uncertainly from my iron-hard chair. As his ostensible tour guide, I had to remain in character for a while longer, no matter how tired I felt. But then I saw what I'd been waiting for. Look, I pointed down the steep street. Here comes the professor himself. William Thompson, first Baron Kelvin of Largs, was striding up the pavement with much more bounce and energy than any of us had shown. He was seventy-one his silver-grey hair thinner than his impressive grey beard, lean almost to the point of looking frail. Yet he climbed the ascent that had made my heart thunder in my ears as if he was strolling amiably across some campus quadrangle. Wells shot to his feet and leaned across the iron rail of the cafe. Good afternoon, your lordship. For a moment I thought he was going to tug at his forelock. Kelvin squinted at him. You were in my audience this morning, were you not? Yes, my lad. Permit me to introduce myself. I am H.G. Wells. You're a physicist, a writer, sir. Journalist? 
formally. Now I'm a novelist. Really? How keen? Young Albert and I had also risen to our feet. Wells introduced us properly and invited Kelvin to join us. Although I must say, Wells murmured as Kelvin came round the railing and took the empty chair at our table, that the service here leaves quite a bit to be desired. Oh, you have to know how to deal with your Teutonic temperament, said Kelvin jovially as we all sat down. He banged the flat of his hand on the table so hard it made us all jump. Service! he bellowed. Service here! Miraculously, the waitress appeared from the doorway and trod stubbornly to our table. She looked very unhappy, sullen in fact. Sallow, pouting face with brooding brown eyes and downturned mouth. She pushed back a lock of hair that had strayed across her forehead. We've been waiting for our beer, Wells said to her, and now this gentleman has joined us. Permit me, sir, I said. It was my job, after all. In German, I asked her to bring us three beers and the tea that Albert had ordered, and to do it quickly. She looked the four of us over as if we were smugglers or criminals of some sort, her eyes lingering briefly on Albert, then turned without a word or even a nod and went back inside the cafe. I stole a glance at Albert. His eyes were riveted on Kelvin, his lips parted as if he wanted to speak but could not work up the nerve. He ran a hand nervously through his thick mop of hair. Kelvin seemed perfectly at ease, smiling affably, his hands laced across his stomach just below his beard. He was the man of authority, acknowledged by the world as the leading scientific figure of his generation. Can it really be true? Albert blurted at last. Have we learned everything of physics that can be learned? He spoke in German, of course, the only language he knew. I immediately translated for him, exactly as he asked his question. Once he understood what Albert was asking, Kelvin nodded his grey old head sagely. Yes, yes. The young men in the laboratories today are putting the final dots over the I's and final crossings of the T's. We've just about finished physics. We know at last all that is to be known. Albert looked crushed. Kelvin did not need a translator to understand the youngster's emotion. If you're thinking of a career in physics, young man, then I heartily advise you to think again. By the time you complete your education, there'll be nothing left for you to do. Nothing? Wells asked as I translated. Nothing at all? Oh, add a few decimal places here and there, I suppose. Tidy up a bit, that sort of thing. Albert had failed his admission test to the Federal Polytechnic in Zurich. He had never been a particularly good student. My goal was to get him to apply again to the Polytechnic and pass the exams. Visibly screwing up his courage, Albert asked, But what about the work of Röntgen? Once I had translated, Kelvin knit his brows. Röntgen? Oh, you mean that report about mysterious rays that'll go through solid walls? X-rays, is it? Albert nodded eagerly. Stuff and nonsense, snapped the old man. Absolute bosh! He may impress a few medical men who know little of science, but his X-rays do not exist. Impossible! German daydreaming. Albert looked at me with his whole life trembling in his piteous eyes. I interpreted. The professor fears that X-rays may be illusory, although he does not as yet have enough evidence to decide one way or the other. Albert's face lit up. Then there is hope. We have not discovered everything as yet. 
I was thinking about how to translate that for Kelvin when Wells ran out of patience. Where is that blasted waitress? I was grateful for the interruption. I'll find her, sir. Dragging myself up from the table, I left the three of them, Wells and Kelvin, chatting amiably while Albert swiveled his head back and forth, understanding not a word. Every joint in my body ached, and I knew there was nothing anyone in this world could do to help me. Cafe was dark inside and smelled of stale beer. The waitress was standing at the bar, speaking rapidly, angrily to the stout barkeep in a low, venomous tone. The barkeep was polishing glasses with the end of his apron, and he looked grim once he noticed me, embarrassed. Three sidles of beer stood on a round tray next to her with a single glass of tea. The beers were getting warm and flat and the tea cooling while she blistered the bartender's ears. I interrupted her vicious monologue. The gentlemen want their drinks, I said in German. She whirled on me, her eyes furious. The gentlemen may have their beers when they get rid of that infernal Jew. Taken aback somewhat, I glanced at the barkeep. He turned away from me. No use asking him to do it, the waitress hissed. We do not serve Jews here. I do not serve Jews, and neither will he. Cafe was almost empty this late in the afternoon. In the dim shadows, I could make out only a pair of elderly gentlemen quietly smoking their pipes and a foursome, apparently two married couples, drinking beer. A six-year-old boy knelt at the far end of the bar, laboriously scrubbing the wooden floor. If it's too much trouble for you, I said, and started to reach for the tray. She clutched at my outstretched arm. No! No Jews will be served here. Never. I could have brushed her off. If my strength had not been drained away, I could have broken every bone in her body and the barkeep's too. But I was nearing the end of my tether, and I knew it. Very well, I said softly. I'll take only the beers. She glowered at me for a moment, then let her hand drop away. I removed the glass of tea from the tray and left it on the bar. Then I carried the beers out into the warm afternoon sunshine. As I set the tray on our table, Wells asked, They have no tea? Albert knew better. They refused to serve Jews, he guessed. His voice was flat, unemotional, neither surprised nor saddened. I nodded as I said in English, Yes, they refused to serve Jews. You're Jewish, Kelvin asked, reaching for his beer. The teenager did not need a translation. He replied, I was born in Germany. I am now a citizen of Switzerland. I have no religion. Yes, I am a Jew. Sitting next to him, I offered him my beer. No, no, he said with a sorrowful little smile. It would merely upset them further. I think perhaps I should leave. Not quite yet, I said. I have something that I want to show you. I reached into the inner pocket of my jacket and pulled out the thick sheaf of paper I've been carrying with me since I'd started out on this mission. I noticed that my hand trembled slightly. What is it? Albert asked. I made a little bow of my head in Wells' direction. This is my translation of Mr. Wells' excellent story, The Time Machine. Wells looked surprised. Albert curious. Kelvin smacked his lips and put his half-drained sidle down. Time Machine? asked young Albert. What's he talking about? Kelvin asked. I explained. I have taken the liberty of translating Mr. Wells' story about a time machine in the hope of attracting a German publisher. Wells said, You never told me that. 
But Kelvin asked, Time machine? What on earth would a time machine be? Wells forced an embarrassed, self-deprecating little smile. It's merely the subject of a tale I've written, my lad. A machine that can travel through time. Into the past, you know, or the uh, future. Kelvin fixed him with a beady gaze. Travel into the past or the future? It is fiction, of course, Wells said apologetically. Of course. Albert seemed fascinated. But how could a machine travel through time? How do you explain it? Looking thoroughly uncomfortable under Kelvin's wilting eye, Will said hesitantly, Well, if you consider time as a dimension... Dimension? asked Kelvin. Rather like the three dimensions of space. Time as a fourth dimension? Yes, rather. Albert nodded eagerly as I translated. Time is a dimension, yes. Whenever we move through space, we move through time as well, do we not? Space and time. Four dimensions all bound together. Kelvin mumbled something indecipherable and reached for his half-finished beer. And one could travel through this dimension? Albert asked. Into the past? Or the future? Utter bilge! Kelvin muttered. "'slamming his emptied cider on the table. "'Quite impossible!' "'It is merely fiction,' said Wells, almost whining. "'Only an idea I toyed with in order to—' "'Fiction, of course,' said Kelvin with great finality. "'Quite abruptly, he pushed himself to his feet. "'I'm afraid I must be going. "'Thank you for the beer.' "'He left us sitting there and started back down the street. "'His face flushed. From the way his beard moved, I could see that he was muttering to himself. I'm afraid we've offended him, said Wells. But how could he become angry over an idea? Albert wondered. The thought seemed to stun him. Why should a new idea infuriate a man of science? The waitress bustled across the patio to our table. When is this Jew leaving? She hissed at me, eyes blazing with fury. I won't have him stinking up our cafe any longer. Obviously shaken, but with as much dignity as a 17-year-old could muster, Albert rose to his feet. I believe, madam, I have imposed on your so gracious hospitality long enough. Wait, I said, grabbing at his jacket sleeve. Take this with you. Read it. I think you'll enjoy it. He smiled at me, but I could see the sadness that would haunt his eyes forever. Thank you, sir. You have been most kind to me. He took the manuscript and left us. I saw him already reading it as he walked slowly down the street toward the bridge back to Lynn's proper. I hoped he would not trip and break his neck as he ambled down the steep street, his nose stuck in the manuscript. The waitress watched him too. Filthy Jew. They're everywhere. They get themselves into everything. That'll be quite enough from you. I said as sternly as I could manage. She glared at me and headed back for the bar. Wells looked more puzzled than annoyed, even after I explained what happened. It's their country, after all, he said with a shrug of his narrow shoulders. If they don't want to mingle with Jews, there's not much we can do about it, is there? I took a sip of my warm, flat beer, not trusting myself to come up with a properly polite response. There was only one timeline in which Albert lived long enough to make an effect on the world. 
There were dozens where he languished in obscurity or was gassed in one of the death camps. Will's expression turned curious. I didn't know you had translated my story. To see if perhaps a German publisher would be interested in it, I lied. But you gave the manuscript to that Jewish fellow. I have another copy of the translation. You do? Why would you... My time was almost up, I knew. I had a powerful urge to end the charade. That young Jewish fellow might change the world, you know. Wells laughed. I mean it, I said. You think that your story is merely a piece of fiction? Let me tell you, it's more than that. Really? Time travel will become possible one day. Don't be ridiculous. But I could see the sudden astonishment in his eyes and the memory. It was I who had suggested the idea of time travel to him. We had discussed it for months back when he had been working for the newspapers. I had kept the idea in the forefront of his imagination until he finally sat down and dashed off his novel. I hunched closer to him, leaned my elbows wearily on the table. Suppose Kelvin's wrong. Suppose there is more to physics than he suspects. How could that be? Wells asked. That lad is reading your story. He will open his eyes to new vistas, new possibilities. Wells cast a suspicious glance at me. You're pulling my leg. I forced a smile. Not altogether. You would do well to pay attention to what the scientists discover over the coming years. You could build a career writing about it. You could become known as a prophet if you play your cards properly. His face took on the strangest expression I had ever seen. He did not want to believe me, and yet he did. He was suspicious, curious, doubtful, and yearning, all at the same time. Above everything else, he was ambitious, thirsting for fame. Like every writer, he wanted to have the world acknowledge his genius. I told him as much as I dared. As the afternoon drifted on and the shadows lengthened, as the sun sank behind the distant mountains and the warmth of the day slowly gave way to an uneasy, deepening chill, I gave him carefully veiled hints of the future. A future. The one I wanted him to promote. Wells could have no conception of the realities of time travel, of course. There was no frame of reference in his tidy 19th century English mind for the infinite branchings of the future. He was incapable of imagining the horrors that lay in store. How could he be? Time branches endlessly and only a few precious handful of those branches manage to avoid utter disaster. Could I show him his beloved London obliterated by fusion bombs? Or the entire northern hemisphere of the earth depopulated by man-made plagues? Or a devastated world turned to a savagery that made his Morlocks seem compassionate? Could I explain to him the energies involved in time travel or the damage they did to the human body? The fact that time travellers were volunteers sent on suicide missions desperately trying to preserve a timeline that saved at least a portion of the human race. The best future I could offer him was a 20th century torture by world wars and genocide. That was the best I could do. So all I did was hint, as gently and subtly as I could, trying to guide him towards the best of all possible futures, horrible though it would seem to him. I could neither control nor coerce anyone. All I could do was offer a bit of guidance. Until the radiation dose from my trip through time finally killed me. Wells was happily oblivious to my pain. He did not even notice the perspiration that beaded my brow despite the chilling breeze that heralded nightfall. 
You appear to be telling me, he said at last, that my writings will soon have some sort of positive effect on the world. They already have, I replied with a genuine smile. Browse rose. That teenage lad is reading your story. Your concept of time as a dimension has already started his fertile mind working. That young student? Will change the world, I said, for the better. Really? Really, I said, trying to sound confident. I knew there were still a thousand pitfalls in young Albert's path, and I would not live long enough to help him pass them. Perhaps others would, but there were no guarantees. I knew that if Albert did not reach his full potential, if he were turned away by the university again or murdered in the coming Holocaust, the future I was attempting to preserve would disappear in a global catastrophe that would end the human race forever. My task was to save as much of humanity as I could. I had accomplished a feeble first step in saving some of mankind. Only a first step. Albert was reading the time machine tale and starting to think that Kelvin was blind to the real world. But there was so much more to do. So very much more. We sat there in the deepening shadows of the approaching twilight, Wells and I, each of us wrapped in our own thoughts about the future. Despite his best English self-control, Wells was smiling contentedly. He saw a future in which he would be hailed as a prophet. I hoped it would work out that way. It was an immense task that I'd undertaken. I felt tired, gloomy, daunted by the immensity of it all. Worst of all, I would never know if I succeeded or not. Then the waitress bustled over to our table. Well, have you finished? Or are you going to stay here all night? Without a translation, Wells understood her tone. Let's go, he said, scraping his chair across the flagstones. I pushed myself to my feet and threw a few coins on the table. The waitress scooped them up immediately and called into the cafe. Come here and scrub down this table at once. The six-year-old boy came trudging across the patio, lugging the heavy wooden pail of water. He stumbled and almost dropped it. Water sloshed onto his mother's legs. She grabbed him by the ear and lifted him nearly off his feet. A faint, tortured squeak issued from the boy's gritted teeth. Be quiet and do your work properly, she told her son, her voice murderously low. If I let your father know how lazy you are... The six-year-old's eyes went wide with terror as his mother let her threat dangle in the air between them. Scrub that table good, Adolf, his mother told him. Get rid of the damn Jew's stink. I looked down at the boy. His eyes were burning with shame and rage and hatred. Save as much of the human race as you can, I told myself. But it was already too late to save him. Are you coming? Wells called to me. Yes, I said to <laughs> There you go. What a story. Fantastic. Copyright is definitely Mr. Ben Bova's. Hopefully I might try and sneak another couple off Mr. Ben Bova. <laughs> it's always, you know, always helpful. And what a great narration. Chris, thank you so much. Yes, your hands are full because I do give you other stories as well. So thank you very much. So that is Oral Delights. Put to bed. The week before Christmas Eve, do try and catch the Christmas show, which is next week. 
comes out on December the 24th, Christmas Eve. Catch it then. It is just laced with tinsel and fairy dust and sparkles, and it's been arranged by Martin. So there you go. Gives you the clue. Heads up straight away. Yes. Imagine stepping back to the 70s music and ding, ding, Christmas, Christmas. It's just full of it. So do join me Christmas Eve for a very Merry Christmas. Do let us know your feelings on these new phones that really give the power to the consumer. That's what it's all about. What's the shop's got to do? What's the bookshop got to do to survive in this technical age? You tell me. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Distortion Sofa of Evaluation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.